Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Gills Talk podcast. We have recently seen an influx in our followers, so thank you so much for following along and subscribing to the podcast. But I did want to go through and refresh everyone who we are and what we do. So if you're not familiar already, the Gills Talk podcast is a podcast that will introduce you to women working in shark and ocean science. If you're not familiar, Gills Talk is a branch of the Gills Club, which is a STEM-based education initiative from the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, with our motto being smart about sharks. So the Gills Club fosters positive attitudes towards sharks and jumpstarts youth's career interest in STEM subjects, boosting their chances of entering careers in sciences further down the road. So for today, we are able to highlight one of our amazing Gills Club scientists, Dr. Katie Lyons, who is a research scientist at the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta, Georgia. In our interview, we're going to learn about the multiple research projects that Katie has her hands in and learning all about sharks from the west coast of the United States and all the way over to the east coast of the U.S. as well. Before we get started, I do want to mention that our Gills Club scholarship is still open until March 1st. The Gills Club scholarship is available to female applicants to join our Gills Club co-founder, Dr. Heather Marshall, and our Gills Club scientist, Maggie Winchester, at Shoals Marine Laboratory in New Hampshire for their biology and conservation of sharks course this summer. Please head to the link in the podcast description or head over to the Gills Club social media sites and all further information is available on there. But do not wait. Like I said, our applications are closing March 1st. But without further ado, then let's get into our interview with Dr. Katie Lyons. Welcome back to Gills Talk, everyone. Today, we have one of our Gills Club scientists, Dr. Katie Lyons, on today. So welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yes, it's so great to have you on. Um, I have been, since I started being involved at the realm of Gills Club and starting the podcast, you've been someone I've been wanting to have on for a while. So I'm very excited to have you on. So thank you so much. Um, so I think we should just get on, get started and talk about what your research is focused on. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, thank you for having me on. Um, I'll try not to be too long winded about it. Um, but at my role at Georgia Aquarium as a research scientist there, um, my elevator pitch that I give to people is that I kind of have these like three buckets of projects that I work on. Um, so we have this zebra shark um, consortium that's this large collaborations across multinational, multi-agency, nonprofit, for-profit, government, um, pretty much everything you can think of um, with the intent of releasing animals that we have bred in human care out into the wild to places where they've been previously extirpated from human fishing. So that's kind of like this large umbrella, but within that umbrella, um, I work on research that's interested on the reproductive aspects. So because it's a, a breeding project in essence, right? Like you need the boys and the girls to get together and <laughs> make healthy little babies we had a lot of questions about, you know, reproductive timing. Again, we're not keeping these animals necessarily in their quote unquote natural condition. So we need to understand like, you know, making sure that again, the boys are doing what they need to do. The girls are doing what they need to do. And the babies themselves are doing what they need to do to have this like healthy 
um, population that we can be releasing. So that's kind of one umbrella and there's a lot of offshoots underneath the zebra shark project that I work on. And then another um, kind of larger umbrella that I work on is a lot of sand tiger um, shark research along the eastern seaboard. And in particular, we're interested in um, providing some information and tools that we can use to help help NOAA reassess the species. So, you know, it, it is a protected species. Again, they their populations were hammered. Um, and back in the 90s, you know, the federal government was like, hey, you know, out of an abundance of caution, we're going to make this a prohibited species. Um, but since then, there hasn't been an assessment to be like, well, is this is this working? Mm-hmm. So we're um, undergoing a large population genetics project um, within that, uh, and then understanding some aspects of animal movement, particularly in our backyard, which is the South Atlantic Bite. You know that ranges from North Carolina down to Florida, basically. So we have a large acoustic tagging project that's underway right now to understand how animals kind of in their southern range move around and use a habitat and understand if they're doing the same things the animals that have been tagged in the north are doing. Uh, So that's kind of one of my umbrellas. And then usually what I give is my third umbrella um, (laughs) are, are some projects that we've started in Georgia it was a student of mine, a former student. She's, you know, since graduated with her master's and is doing doing great things. But she was interested in understanding, you know, how anthropogenic impacts on juvenile shark populations could influence the mercury that has accumulated in their bodies. Um, so we have been kind of ongoing with our juvenile shark survey uh, along the coast of Georgia, which has been a lot of fun, very eye-opening. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty sharky, sharkier than I would have imagined. Again, I'm not I'm not from this coast, but that's been a lot of fun to look into that and have had some surprises there as well. So those are kind of like my like three big things that I work on and then dabble in kind of a bunch of other, other stuff. But that's kind of, again, my long-winded elevator pitch of, you know, what is it that I do? <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> yeah. Is that all? Yeah. Um, try to, you know, try to keep myself uh, pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, I think you are. I don't know if you can add anything else. I mean, maybe you can. Great for you. <laughs> so busy, so busy. So I think the first thing, my first, uh, it's not even an assumption, but a note is that when you think of someone, like you said, you are on the research side for their Georgia Aquarium. When you think of an aquarium, if it's Georgia, if it's here off of the New England Aquarium in Boston, the National Aquarium in in, 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 in Baltimore, you see, you know, you think of the aquarium, oh, the people that just work there, they maintain the tanks, they feed the fish, make sure everything is happy and healthy. But there's this, like, I think that's like the front of the house, right? And then there's this so much background of that aquarium work does too and I think I mean like you said you just named three things that you mainly do and then there's other things too and it's all behind this large scope so I think that's that's pretty important too to mention that I think yeah and I mean you're absolutely right like I think a lot of people when they first like hear like oh you work at an aquarium like you take care of animals it's like oh no like there's a whole departments that are very much more educated and well-versed and knowledgeable than I am in that. Like I, you know, I leave them to do the great work that they do. Um, But, you know, at the heart of it, like I'm a scientist, like I'm, 
I'm not actually a husbandry person. I wish I had more of those skills, but yeah, I, I leave that to the prof- to the professionals. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's if anyone is listening that is in a current college career, maybe even thinking about going toward their master's and they're like, what do I do in this shark world? Like, if you want to work in an aquarium, you could do things rather than husbandry, just like you, right? So there are these like so many branches into that realm of what you can do. But I want to first talk about the zebra shark work because, oh, two years ago now, maybe a little over a year ago. Oh my gosh, her name just went right out of my head. Trisha Meredith, does she work on that too? Yeah, she works yes. um, at Georgia. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so I know she briefly mentioned it in her. So again, just like making these connections between the Gills Club science team, all of um, the ways that you all work together, I think is so interesting. But then you talk about, you talk about the, the reproductive aspects of it and, you know, you have to make sure males are doing their thing. Females are doing their thing. How do you in better words, like set the mood? Like, does that make sense? <laughs> you know, like how, yeah, does, that's... Like, how do you recreate those conditions in a lab for them to, you know, help reproduce this population? Yeah, no, that that's a great question. So um, pretty much most of the animals that are part of this project um, are on exhibit, right? So they're kind of doing both duties, right? They're being their animal ambassadors um, in the aquarium for the public to see, you know, people wouldn't probably see these animals unless they were, um, they were housed here for people to come look at. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, they're also doing this kind of other thing of like, well, you're laying these eggs anyways. Um, So zebra sharks are oviparous. So they're egg layers. Uh, They're quite fecund. Um, That means that they lay generally a lot of eggs. Um, So what we've been doing we're kind of wrapping up this project right now, um, was enrolling um, different sharks in a reproductive um, quarterly exam. So we had some institutions that were willing to handle their animals monthly, others that would do it quarterly. um, So we can kind of pair a different bunch of pieces of information together. So our exam, kind of much like the physical that you would have if you went to the doctor, right? We take a blood sample. We're using that to analyze a suite of steroid hormones that are involved in reproduction. We're taking ultrasounds and that's to look at the gonadal um, development. So, you know, measuring your follicle sizes and seeing if there's any eggs that actually are in the oviducts, assessing whether you're in a quiet period or an active laying period, and then pairing that together with, you know, the actual eggs that we can see being laid. And, you know, some of the gist of what we found is that, you know, females uh, are kind of on all sorts of different schedules. And I mean, Probably part of that is that, you know, most places maintain constant light, constant temperature, right? Like there is a whole other difficulty in, you know, even a couple degrees difference for some places, you know, might not be feasible based on infrastructure, based on the other animals that you might have in the habitat. Um, So there's, you know, obviously a number of reasons for that, but because we're, you know, don't have those natural cues, it does seem like you have different females that are kind of, I don't want to say out of sync necessarily, but they have their own reproductive schedules going on. So that was really um, interesting for us. And again, trying to think of, okay, you know, there's, there's fewer males that we have available to us to actually, you know, try to get those things paired up. But that that's been, that's been quite interesting. Yeah, I, you just went into like, it's, it almost sounds like what us women go through. If you have an infertility issue, all the same tests that almost (laughs) 
that women ha have to do. The similarities are really surprising to me that you are just going through that. Yeah. And it's kind of, again, cool that you're like, you know, this like super ancient fish, when you think about how old uh, lazenbranchs are, mm -hmm. you know, still using a lot of the same hormones that we use, you know, so estrogen, progesterone, like those are important. <laughs> they are at, across all species, apparently <laughs> with learning about that. So thank you so much for going more into that as well. And then I guess same for going to the next umbrella, the sand tiger work too. Um, so looking at the population genetics and movement of going through and learning about them as well, especially like you said, with the decline in those populations. So looking at population genetics, and I know we've had a few scientists on before that work with genetics and they test for that in different ways. So I'd just like to hear a little bit more about what those types of testings that you do with it. Sure. And I'm going to preface that I'm not a geneticist, um, <laughs> to be clear, um, but we work with colleagues um, at Ripley's Aquariums, my partner in crime, um, Dr. Jen Wiffles, um, and then uh, our partners in crime at Texas A&M Corpus Christi um, with Dave Portnoy's lab. So we're using um, genomic approaches. Uh, so we've recently sequenced the sand tiger genome, and it's currently being assembled. And basically, we're kind of doing that in order to leverage the most information that we can um, through these, you know, next gen sequencing techniques. So we're not, we're kind of, that's the kind of part that we're at right now. We haven't yet been able to move on to like the actual pop gen stuff of like, you know, looking at, um, again, pairing those movements too, that we hope will be informative of where sharks may be going. And if we see discrete, you know, kind of meta populations, if you will. So they're not a new species or anything, but there might be these different breeding groups, if you will. Um, so we're really curious to see how that how that turns out. But, you know, right now it's uh, collecting fin clips from as many places as we can. Um, and there's a whole slew of collaborators who are helping with that. Um, you know, we're pretty much like, if you get a sand tiger, please take a fin clip. <laughs> that will go into, into that piece. Awesome. Thank you for that. And then let's get into the third umbrella going into um, the juvenile shark work that you're working, um, that you were helping out with then in Georgia. And that was that just, I'm sorry if you said it during your, 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 your mini pitch, but is this any juvenile shark or were we looking at one juvenile? Um, yeah, so it's a, a suite of juveniles. So it's non non targeted, basically. I mean, most of what we catch is sharp nose and bonnet head. That's by yeah. far and away. Um, and then you know, sandbar, black tip, lesser in the fine fine tooth, uh, hammerhead. You know, all kinds of stuff. Um, black nose. I think I'm probably forgetting some. The lemon shark is my white whale down there. I know that they're there, but we're probably just not fishing in the right areas. So one of these days we will catch a lemon shark and I'll be very, very happy about that. But essentially what, um, for, for this project that we started with my former student was we were interested in looking at um, mercury as a proxy for, for human, human impact on these estuaries. So Georgia has some of the largest like naturally intact estuarine ecosystems, you know, along the whole East coast, like, compared to other states, were fairly underdeveloped. Um, and so there's a lot of pristine habitat that, you know, is absolutely gorgeous. And it's, you know, beautiful to be out there besides when it's he the heat and like batting off horse flies. But um, besides that, so basically what we were doing was we were sampling in three um, estuary systems that have different levels of impact. So 
one of our systems was by Savannah, you know, a very large industrial port. Um, and then in the middle of the coast, there's an estuary reserve system. So again, very, very pristine, not a lot of people that live there. Um, and so we were measuring mercury in the red blood cells of these sharks kind of as a, as this proxy. Mm -hmm. um, so we could have kind of a less invasive way of, of looking at that. And it was shocking, you know, what we were finding. We didn't really find a strong effect of, you know, if you're in these like more beautiful locations, you don't necessarily have less mercury, but the ecology of the animals definitely was maybe underappreciated than when we first started in the sense of, you know, they're, they're doing different things. We have some animals coming from offshore, coming inshore, some that are coming up from down south that are very coastal. Um, so we definitely see a species specific effect, but it, it wasn't again, what we expected. Um, and that just made it like pretty cool. Cause you're like, Oh, okay. We have to like kind of rethink, you know, and be humbled by, by why we're not seeing what we thought. <laughs> yeah. And that's like, that's the one thing I love about science. I think what draws a lot of us to science, if it is working with sharks or any other animal, right. Is that we might have one idea of how it's going to end up. And it usually isn't. And, and I think that's something that is, it always keeps us curious. And I think a lot of us in science already have like this naturally curious mind and wanting to know more. So like, like you said, having that almost like humble, you'd be like, oh yeah, we don't have this figured out yet. So then I think then going back into, so you already just said that was something that we really didn't expect, but then going through everything else that you have done so far, I would love to hear, like, do you have another like favorite discovery or anything that you have been like, that's something that's like stuck in your mind so, so far? Um, I mean, we have some other recent work that is still ongoing. We have a large uh, California Sea Grant project. So out here in California um, with Chris Lowe Shark Lab and collaborators at uh, Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary, where we're looking at animals as biovectors of DDT pollution um, to low-income communities that might be consuming um, elasmobranch. So part of that project has been sampling um, tissues of animals, tagging them, letting them go and see basically like, where are you taking this? Um, and is, are you moving from areas of high contamination to areas of low contamination or vice versa? But some of the like recent, recent data that we've got from some of our satellite tags um, on bat rays has been that they like, they swim and use habitats that are super deep, much deeper than like I ever would have thought. Like I'd been like, oh, bat ray, coast, shallow coastal species. And we're finding animals hundreds of meters of diving to super like just deeper than we would have ever mm -hmm. predicted so that's some again ongoing stuff that we're currently working on but that has been just yeah very very humbling where you're like maybe we don't know anything <laughs> about this yeah yeah I think like it's something that is a familiar topic that gets brought up especially on this podcast is that once we figure out one thing there's like a whole other now book of questions that we have to answer because we just, every little thing just pops up with something more. So I think as you were saying, you know, you are now, you have your, your PhD, you have multiple hats that you are wearing. Like, how do you like keep yourself like grounded with all of that? Like, how do you like manage this all? That's a great question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't actually know. I mean, I think it's really what it comes down to is the passion mm. for it. Like, 
if I wasn't passionate about this, I don't think I would work as hard as I do, you know, for more than a 40 hour work week. There's just too much to do to, you just have to work more. And if I didn't love what I did, then that certainly would be a much bigger chore than what it is. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think like at the end of the day, it comes back to the science and it comes back to the questions that they're just, you know, so interesting that you're like, well, I need to know more. Like there's just so much to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, it is uh, quite, you know, the natural world is quite impressive when you think about, you know, how long that humans have been studying it. And again, like, we still don't know. There's still like so much we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So like you said, there's so much more to know, so much more to see. You already said earlier, white whale is a lemon shark, especially for the work that you're doing off of of Georgia with the juvenile. So is that like your like bucket list shark right now? It's interesting because like when you think like they're lemon sharks, they're cute. But usually when I ask this question to scientists, I get like whale sharks, white sharks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say for like that project, um, definitely the lemon shark is my white whale. And one of these days I'm going to, I'm going to get one. I'm going to be so thrilled. But in terms of like other species that I would love to see in the wild, it would be oceanic white tip. Um, I think, you know, they're just such a, an awesome predator that uh, I think that would be pretty cool. Uh, I'd probably be pretty terrified at the same time, but you know, good you have you have the fear and the fascination <laughs> yes yes um that would be one i would love to see too i they are just they're so beautiful and so cool i have a friend that lives out in hawaii and she leads some um, she does a lot of manta ray work and one time she saw one from the distance and I was, she was just like <laughs> they're just that moment <laughs> Beautiful. That was me when I first, when I saw a hammerhead in the wild, that was something I wasn't expecting to see. I was in Bimini in May when they really aren't really in that area. And one just like came through and all of us were just (sighs) magical. So great. (laughs) So then I think when, so you already mentioned this earlier when you were talking, when we were talking about this connection with the aquarium work and you said about um, that you wish you learned more about husband, about husbandry and things like that. So then thinking back to when you were going through school and going through things, there's always something that scientists say, I wish I took more of like coding or maybe it was husbandry for, for you, you know, like, is there anything like that? You're thinking, man, like, I wish I had more experience of this, like getting up through into your career so far. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think like the coding is definitely a big one. It, I feel like I was on like sort of the R wave, like cusp, but not like necessarily like in it, like where people have to have that these Mm -hmm. days. And I'm not a computer programmer. That's not, that's not how my brain works. I can do, you know, I can do whatever it is I need to do for my purposes, but higher level stuff, that's, you know, where I need to collaborate with other folks that, that have more of that aptitude. And I think recognizing, you know, that you can't do everything can be good too, so that you can play off your strengths and find those that can complement your weaknesses. Um, But in terms of like undergrad, I think I had this like misconception that, you know, to be a marine biologist, like I had to get a degree in marine biology. Mm. And I don't know that I would change that per se, but it certainly maybe wouldn't have limited my options for where I considered going to school. 
Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, like no one actually cares what your degree is in. Um, it really is like, are you productive? Can you collaborate? You know, kind of some of these other, these other things that you can show people, you know, that you're a serious scientist. Like I said, I don't regret any of, any of my decisions, but looking back on it, it's like, yeah, I put like way too much emphasis on like a marine biology, like bachelor of science. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I forget what scientists said this on the podcast. They said it's about the skills, not the subject and being able to, how can you apply those skills or how can you apply those like interpersonal, like people skills, like collaboration, communication, and those will take you a lot further. Cause then you can also be bottlenecked too. If you're focusing on one thing in marine science, one species, it's harder to get yourself branched out there. I also want to talk about was this your like end goal because you said like you had it in your head like marine biology that's what I want to do so was that always the end goal for you looking down the line like freshman year in college Katie I'm gonna be a marine biologist working with sharks or was there like something else I, I mean I have like been wanting this career since I was like a wee itty bitty tiny little thing in working with students and um you know talking with other people I have come to realize that like knowing what you wanted to do from a young age and sticking with it, like is more of not the norm and not saying that like as a bad thing or anything, just like, I feel very actually fortunate that like, I knew exactly what it was that I wanted to do. And I kind of worked, was able to work towards that goal then, you know, compared to, I think it's a lot harder when you're not sure what you want to do and you have a lot of interests and then figuring that out, you know, I, I, um, I don't envy that of, you know, folks that, that have to do that, because that's, a, that is way more challenging, I think. <laughs> and, you know, just, you always have to find like your own path. But yeah, I don't know that it was like, oh, I want to be like a shark scientist. It was, you know, I want to work on, you know, marine animals, you know, have a love of animals and really, yeah, the, kind of that focusing on kind of that sharky side of things did come later in college with um, volunteer opportunities that I was able and fortunate enough to to have that opportunity to dip my toes in and be like, oh, wow, like people, people actually do this. So, so I think like having those experiences and, you know, I always tell folks like try everything because it's so important to really learn like what you do like, and more importantly, to really get experience in things that you don't like. And that can help you again, guide your career for where you want to go. Cause you should be doing something that you like, hopefully it is something that you love. Yes, absolutely. I, that is something that I preach to high schoolers when they ask is that, and even college students like do just ask for, if anyone needs help, especially in college, you can go into any professor or grad student's office and be like, do you need help? And they can say yes, or they can say no. And they might say no, but I know X, Y, Z that needs help. And you mosey on over there <laughs> and you ask the same thing, but it's like you said, you figure out what you don't like, figure out what you do like, but it is still like gaining those skills along the way is super important. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So then I think before we wrap up, you have sprinkled really great knowledge and some tips and tricks along the way, but I am going to ask it as an official question for you is what advice would you give yourself starting out in this realm of shark science and research? Yeah. Try, try everything like, you know, cause if you don't like it, you can always switch to something else. 
you know, don't rush into something just because it seems easy or delaying the inevitable choice that you're going to have to make about, you know, what is it that you're going to do with your life? Um, you know, in particular, I think uh, for grad students, you know, like, especially after college, when you're like, I, I don't really, you know, like you've learned a bunch of stuff, but at the same time, you're also still kind of like naive to like the world and like getting a job, like now what do I do? Um, it can be easy to go like hide in grad school to delay facing that inevitable choice that you have to make of like, well, like you do need a job mm -hmm. and you need to be looking for a career that you can have. So, so I think, you know, there's no rush, like take your time, try a bunch of stuff and it'll work out. Yeah. I think that is great advice to end on. Um, so I'm really excited to, to continue learning more about as you all learn more about the, those DDT levels out in, in California. That is such an interesting study. And I think it's important to have when we do have a lot of communities that do depend on the fishing here off of our coastline to eat. So I'm really excited to hear more about as that research does continue. But before I let you go then today, do can anyone follow you if it's on social media, being able to like keep up to date with research or anything? Um, yeah, I don't do social media. Um, I'm probably one of those slight recluses in that regard. Um, but you know, any Google Scholar uh, for for our papers, um, the aquarium does post stuff time to time. And, uh, you know, any of our colleagues that have those connections. Um, so for example, for our DDT stuff, I'm sure you can follow the CSOB Shark Lab on social media. I know they're very active in the white shark realm. So yeah, so Unfortunately, that's maybe a little less uh, exciting than some of your other guests. <laughs> that's okay. Hey, like you said earlier, there's a lot of hats that you wear, umbrellas that you are holding. Something has to be put aside and that is social media for you. And that is okay. That's how you're finding your balance, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming on today. This was great to hear a little bit more about what you do and an update. We haven't had we haven't done really an update with you on Gills Club in many, many years. So I'm very happy to have you back on and to give you, give everyone a fresh update of what you have been up to. Oh, well, thank you again for having me. It was a delight.